0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, more and more data breaches are leading to blackmail, but the stats don't tell the whole picture. We'll explain. Plus the latest in the Sony breach and the Internet's wider reaction to the entire thing, plus a great batch of your questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 193 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on December 18th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. Go check it out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan.
1: Hey, Chris, everybody.
0: Hey, man. So uh, we're sitting here at the top of a double recording session because it is the holidays. Yep. And uh, did you bring a beverage? Are you good? I have three. I, uh, so don't tell the wife. Hopefully she's not watching because I think she had to run to my kid's school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did a tactical strike. I came down to the studio because, you know, there's, it takes about, about an hour to get the studio ready to do a show. So I came down here about an hour ago. And I knew that I had a very limited time before we went on air. Now, the Jimmy John's restaurant doesn't open until 10.30 a.m. So I placed the order online so that way I was hopefully early in the queue. They got here with the food and now I'm – so I, I set up the studio. The sandwiches came in. I slammed down a sandwich. I'm good to go for like two recording sessions. There you go. Unplug, or That was an unpaid plug, but it worked out pretty well. Speaking of food, something else yes. I might as well mention uh, before we get into the show because it is the holidays. This is, yeah. this is our pre-holiday show, I guess. So now is a good time to get the word out there. Uh, we set up a, a community around open source recipes. You can go to openyourmouth.recipes with the S on there. And uh, make sure you get that. It's openyourmouth.recipes. And uh, it goes there, takes you to a GitHub page. And uh, there's some really great submissions. We kind of were like tongue-in-cheek about it. But then we <laughs> realized this is actually a really cool way for developers in the JB community to to find each other. Uh, or people to maybe go out and uh, maybe learn a little bit about github and git and things like that and maybe markdown so there's like yes, there's like exactly. a, multiple reasons to check it out but uh there is like now we've got like whole categories over here we've got appetizers, bacon breakfast, cocktails desserts, eggs hot dishes liquor noodles, pastas pizza sandwiches sauces sides. oh my gosh uh, and I liked uh there was a there was a good one in the cocktail in here uh, oh yeah here we go a screwdriver here you go. So there's the whole thing. And, of course, you could make your modification to this, and you could submit a pull request. It's kind of neat. It's it was actually kind of a neat initiative. Uh, we're going to be doing some uh, some different things in, with the community throughout 2015. And this is sort of like the early way for people to sort of get connected. We also have a new site set up at uh, jbdev.community, which has a bunch mm-hmm. of resources for people that might want to build apps around JB content. Yes. We've got a lot of stuff we're working on behind the scenes Yep, for 2015.
1: You want to play the Dev Summit video?
0: Yeah, uh, I don't really know where you can get it other than the IRC at the moment, because we're gonna, I th- or unless Rikai was gonna, I think he was thinking about linking it at the, on the uh, jbdev.community community page. But we had last Monday on the fifteenth we held our first developer summit. Alan was there, which was awesome, and uh, it was like a little over an hour, and I recorded the video. Right now, if you go into the JBDev IRC or Jupiter Dev IRC, you can find it in there. But I think mm-hmm. it's also going to be linked up at the jbdev.community page. And it's already right. was already released to patrons uh, earlier in the week. So there's a lot of cool stuff we have going on. And if you want to dig into some of it, that, that uh, developer summit video would be a good place to start. So, uh, yes. yeah, Rikai says it'll be up on the uh, jbdev.community page in just a few minutes. So there we go.
2: Perfect.
0: All right, Alan. Well, <clears throat> we do have a lot to jump into today. We do. So uh, let's start by uh, thanking our first sponsor. We'll start there, and then we'll get into our first story, and that is DigitalOcean. Go over there right now to DigitalOcean.com and bring the promo code with you, SNAPDECEMBER, so that way you can get a $10 credit. Now, DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server that you get root access to. And DigitalOcean's going to... Their setup, their system, their interface, it, it, you can get started in less than a minute. That's what's really cool is as soon as you think, okay, I'm ready to go work on this, or I want to try this out, or let's just test this. It it really is great to be able to get started in less than a minute, and at yeah, five it's just
1: you know when you're working on something, uh, removing all those barriers to be like, oh, I need to set up a whole server. It's like no, no, yeah, one second I, I can try it out and see. what yep. the, and we're, more t- we're, more work tends to get done when you can just try it out right while you're thinking about it instead yeah. of. When you the moment put it off, has stri- it just keeps yeah. getting off When the idea strikes
0: you, you can go take, exactly. you can go get it done, and it's not a big barrier to entry. Uh, plus, it's only five dollars a month, with and that's going to get you five hundred twelve megabytes of RAM, a twenty gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for five dollars. And they've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And one of the things that I've heard that folks are doing uh, is developing essentially their own little private network up in the DigitalOcean cloud. Because you could have multiple droplets that all communicate using private networking on the back end for yep. things like authentication, or maybe even like a free NAS or open media and backups, vault or yeah.
1: whatever you want to do.
0: Database, like there's a lot of possibilities, and you can create snapshots of your systems and and redeploy them over and over again to save even more time. And they've got a lot of one-click applications too, a lot of really great stuff. Uh, and their community builds a lot of great apps around DigitalOcean. And that's because DigitalOcean is a straightforward API that you can either take advantage of or go check out their community section and look at a lot of the really cool apps that have been written. Alan, there's a there's an IRC bot that you can get to manage your DigitalOcean yeah. droplet if you're if you're crazy. Once
1: you authenticate to it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they also announced that after overwhelming demand that they will be supporting FreeBSD in the first couple of months of next year.
0: Yeah, man, isn't that something? Wow.
1: So, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, I know, right? Well, and, uh, you know... Uh, I think it's going to probably be a huge hit for them. So go check them out. They've got an amazing intuitive control panel powering it all. And also, they're doubling down on their tutorials. In fact, they'll pay up to $200 if you've got a great tutorial and their editing staff will work with you. We've got a link in the show notes for more information about that. So Snap December, give you a $10 credit throughout the $5 rig, two months for free. Be a great way to support the TechSnap program as we sail off into 2015. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring TechSnap. You guys are great. Lots and lots and lots of you have been checking them out and doing a whole bunch of cool stuff. Uh, In our Best of episode, I might feature some of that stuff from the community. That's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, Alan, so I know we have a lot to cover today. Should we start with this uh, hospital blackmail situation?
1: Yes. Uh, So this is a story by Network World. Uh, A group of hospitals in Illinois is currently being blackmailed with stolen patient data. Uh, So the Illinois hospital says someone attempted to... uh, Blackmail them uh, to stop the release of data about some of its patients. So the hospital change uh, received an anonymous email asking for a substantial amount of money in order to prevent the release of the patient data. A sample of the data was included in that email as proof that they actually had had the stolen data. Uh Uh, The hospital said it immediately notified law enforcement agencies uh, to try to get help. Uh, An investigation discovered the data retains the public who visited the Clay County hospital chains, uh, of clinics on or before February 2012 so it doesn't seem to have any newer data hmm. only data leading up to February of 2012 Although they didn't say how far back it goes um, a hospital representative declined to disclose how many people this involves but said the data is limited to uh, patient name, address, social security number and date of birth if it didn't have the social security number that wouldn't be so yeah, bad yeah. Uh, it's enough now say, probably
0: to do a little identity theft
1: Right. They say, uh, no dabble, dabble, Right. They say no uh, medical information was actually compromised in the breach. Oh, okay. Although, if they don't know exactly how it happened, how do they know that? Uh, in particular, so the hospital believes the data was uh, has not been released so far. Um, it didn't disclose how the data was obtained, but they the hospital did say an audit by an outside expert concluded that the hospital's network had not been hacked. Uh, so Maybe that it really raises party? the question of how it got out, right? Uh, the age yeah. of the data suggests that this compromise may involve backups or cold storage or something, right? Mm. If it's only uh, for patients going back a couple of years and before that.
0: It could even be something as simple as like an old tape, you know. Right. I mean, those can proper, those are often mismanaged. Somebody takes it off
1: site. Right, although with the email blackmail thing is a little, yeah. Uh, it, it's hard to say. Yeah, very true. But you know, they, so they hired one expert who says they weren't hacked. That doesn't necessarily mean anything <laughs> either, yeah. right? Yeah. No, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it and it seems obvious that the data is kind of old, which is weird and kind of points you in a different direction, right? Uh, so it's not clear if the hospital stores all the older data themselves or if they re- rely on some third party provider that deals with their older files or whatever. Uh, and then maybe that was what was compromised.
0: Maybe they don't uh, have some of the patient records online.
1: Right. Uh, it's it's hard to say, but they. Obviously, this is digitized data that uh, somebody got a hold of and is is trying to blackmail them with. Um, so we don't have much more on that story, but I thought it was interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, did you see? Also, the uh, article goes on to say that uh, according to uh, a recent report, so uh, <laughs> by
1: uh, uh, Identity Theft Reporting yeah, Center,
0: yeah, that uh, there's been 304 breaches so far this uh, year in the U.S. healthcare sector. That's a 42 se- percent yep. of the 720 breaches reported across the country. So, right. that's, a good, so uh, that's a good. That's a good. That's a forty-two percent of the breaches are medical related ones.
1: Uh, well, it's if I'm forty-two percent of the reported breaches. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> okay. but in part because of the uh because of the massive breaches at you know uh, Target and Home Depot and so on, the healthcare data only accounts for nine point seven percent of all the records that were compromised in 2014. Uh, but the other thing is because uh hospitals and healthcare providers and so on are under much stricter rules about disclosing breaches, uh anyway anything involving healthcare, if it's more than five hundred people, it has to be publicly disclosed. Mm. If it's less than um the point of not disclosing it is that it could target like you could easily match up the data to individual people that way. And uh, you know it it would do more damage to the people's privacy to report the breach when there's when it's only specific people that were targeted or whatever.
0: Well, and going back to how they say they don't think uh, patient data was compromised, you know, um, when I was doing contracting, the majority of my clients were doctors' offices, and uh, a lot of times different applications had different databases by different vendors, and sometimes they were Microsoft SQL, and on the same system there might be some really old database.
1: this one is a billing database, yeah, and that's why it has social security information for for right. uh, yeah. collections. So, and so I, on. I mean,
0: I'm, on my clients that I'm thinking of, you could have breached that system and maybe gotten a Microsoft SQL database, but there could have been com- a completely different database software on there. That right,
1: you, and you know, a lot of times for HIPAA compliance or whatever, they they would use a third party company to actually do the complicated, yeah, uh, one, the regulated storage of the patient data. Yeah, whereas uh, you know their billing data is just. An Excel spreadsheet or a SQL database. But right?
0: I, I kind of like giving more thought to the idea that it was a compromised backup, too, because I think...
1: Well, just because of the age of the data. Yeah. That's what's just that to me.
0: Right. And that, to me, stands out. And then also, I think it's a super low-hanging fruit for uh, a lot of... Uh, at least for a lot of companies, that They're pr- in my experience, when they're doing tapes, it usually was either, either you went all the way in and you got, like, a full-fledged service that managed it for you. Or you did something like you got, like, a case that locks, and one of the IT guys uh, would drive it down to another building or something like that. And on occasion, it would get left in the trunk.
1: Um, Well, when I worked at the power plant, uh, I don't think there was any really sensitive data on any of this. But, uh, yeah, when the server main guy came in at the beginning of the day for work, he'd walk over, pull the tape out of the bottom of the – exactly changer, yep. pull the tape out of the bottom, label it with the date, and stick it in a cardboard box right beside the tape backup machine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, only the one that got done on Sundays or whatever went off-site or something like that.
0: So we, we literally would have, like, a system set up uh, when I worked at a place for a long time where there was two buildings that were about two miles apart, and so one of the IT guys, it was his job, and I would fill in for him when he was on vacation in the morning, he would stop at the one office, pick up the tapes, and bring it down to our building. And at lunchtime, he would take our tapes and drop them off at the other building. And he would just yeah. kind of very casually do it when, when he was going. And, you know, sometimes at lunch he would forget, so maybe he'd do it later in the afternoon when things would slow down. And yeah. this was the off-site tape solution.
1: Right. And well, for this one, even j- just thinking about security, is a cardboard box sitting beside the tape <laughs> machine. Now, it's in the back of the IT department, but there were enough people that could just walk in and walk out with a tape.
0: And part of, the, part of the problem is if you get too complicated, if you go, like, with too much security on the tape or too sophisticated in where the tape gets stored, and then you have a, a serious emergency where you need to restore that data, any complications you add there are going to add time it takes you to get exactly. back to the data. You know,
1: if, if only these certain people are allowed to access the tape vault or whatever, then you have the problem of, well, that one's on vacation and the other's sick today, so yeah. now we have no backup. Or how do we get the backups and... Yeah. It's it's definitely complicated. That's why services like Tarsnap are really appealing. Yes. Um, So uh, the other thing to mention here is, uh, like we said, 42% of the breaches involved healthcare, but that's mostly because healthcare providers are required to report their breaches and other people aren't. Right? And so Uh it's possibly that number seems artificially inflated, right? It's not that healthcare is necessarily more insecure than anything else, but they're required to report they have every to possible breach, by default. Uh, right? You know, so a stolen laptop that might have contained some data, even if they don't know exactly what data it might have contained or whatever, has to be reported. Whereas at a company, a lost laptop doesn't get reported, right? Yep. Th- publicly, yeah. Uh, and so, um, you know, you have to keep that in mind when you are looking at this number of forty-two percent of the seven hundred and twenty breaches yeah. that happen across the country.
0: That is an interesting way where that stat uh is going to get skewed naturally and then because it's skewed that's gonna be played up, you
1: know. Yeah. Uh
0: that's a good catch. That's good for us to know. All right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Um yeah j-
1: yeah, people need to have more secure storage.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh what's the uh free free plug? What's the BSD now uh URL for tarSnap?
1: Uh tarSnap.com slash BSD now.
0: <laughs> so I mean seriously it's it's one of those. It's it's like IX Systems. It's we've been recommending them since long before they were sponsors. And uh, yep. TarSnap sponsors the BSD Now show. They don't sponsor this show. We don't get ma- we don't get paid anything to say that. But it's still the the backup solution that we both recommend. Yep. Uh, all right. So while we're talking about it's stuff, uh,
1: it's great and small and cheap.
0: Yeah, and secure and mm. uh, you know. Well yes, that's I guess
1: the most important thing.
0: Yeah. Well, and uh, you've you've actually met the person that makes it. So, you yes. know, that's... that's interviewed a, him on the show. That's a positive.
1: Uh, he was only willing to install Skype on his phone, not on his laptop.
0: Lenart was like that, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's um, funny. Uh, all right, well, let's talk about something else we recommend, and that's IX Systems. Head over to <laughs> ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check out some of the amazing systems they have powered by those great Intel processors. Mm. com slash techsnap. I'm always checking out what they've got going on. They have a post-up on their blog about TrueNAS replacing EMC and NetApp. Millions of institutions all around the world need enterprise features like snapshots, replications, corruption protection, software rate, and many more. TrueNAS is a great solution for
1: that. So they were running a a series of webinars about that. And uh, in the new year, they're planning a more extensive series that will cover a little more in-depth, less just you know, oh, here's ZFS, it's cool kind of thing, and more (laughs) how to actually uh, use it and so on, and how to take best advantage of it. Um,
0: That's really cool. So you probably, if you're interested, uh, check ah, it out on their What's New page.
1: The series will be the benefits of ZFS, and it will feature a uh, question-answer style interview uh, with uh, the marketing guy from IX asking questions of noted ZFS expert Alan Jude.
0: (laughs) Oh, hey, I know that guy. Yeah, that's really
1: cool. So, so, is it going to yeah, be like so, live, or is it like just a text Q and A? We're going to do it's a video uh, webinar. There'll be two or three of them done live, and then the last one we'll record, and that'll be repeated that for people that missed the live ones.
0: Is so cool. And then they should post them to their blog. And then when we're doing the IX spot, we could talk about your video on the <laughs> IX blog. Wow, that is awesome. Uh, uh, go over to ixsystems.com. Alan, didn't you have a little piece of uh, hardware goodness there that you were going to show us? Just real Um, quick. I know you talked about it. The hardware is already already gone. But this is more about the tender love and care that hardware gets, really.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. So, you know, um, we just had like Cyber Monday or whatever a couple weeks ago. Uh, And so I ordered hard drives from Amazon for my storage here. Uh, But we also had a a new client at and We need more storage. So, we had our big server we bought from iX that we hadn't completely filled with hard drives because uh, we needed to save a bit of money at the time. So, we're like, well, we'll only fill it, you know, five-sixths full of hard drives. <laughs> right, we we filled 30 of the 36 slots with hard drives. Uh, um, so, I asked for a quote on the price of the hard drives and because uh, I was like, well, if I'm just buying the hard drives, probably not going to make that big of a difference, but uh, iX was actually cheaper than Amazon and had the better warranty. Oh, Nice. <laughs> so, very I was like, definitely go with uh, But it turned out that the the hard drives I ordered from Amazon and the hard drives I ordered from iX arrived on the same day. Uh, and just looking at the boxes and the difference, I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, the ones for Amazon came in the original box from the manufacturer, Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, a little square box, yeah. and it had these little plastic, <clears> uh, <throat> yeah, I've seen it. Uh, papery plastic thing that holds the hard drive in the middle of the box so it doesn't get bumped around too bad or whatever. And then IX ships them, uh, so the box is padded at the bottom with this Ooh. like acoustic foam. Dude, right? you could put that up on the wall.
0: It'll help with the podcast.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, then the hard drives are slotted in these foam bricks. Yeah, it looks like a giant like toaster. The size of a cinder block. Yeah, so, it is. It's exactly uh,
0: like the size of a cinder block with toaster and slots.
1: It perfectly fits a hard drive. Like it's it's tight enough, but not too tight. Uh, so the hard drives are slotted in here, and then more of this foam on top. Oh, awesome. And so there's like more than an inch of foam in every direction, all the way on the hard drives. So it doesn't matter if the delivery guy is like kicking the box or, rush or something. It's not going to cause a problem. Yeah. But you know, these FedEx who treat the boxes a little nicer anyway. <laughs> uh, but, um, yes, uh, you know, it was great. And, uh, you know, uh, when we bought the server originally, they came packed the same way, except for they had actually gone to the trouble of taking the drives out of the static bag, putting them in the drive carrier, and then stuffing that drive carrier back into the static bag and then into the slot in the in the foam brick.
0: So not only are your drives safe and comfy, but you might even have a little better podcast sound in the future. You never know. Yeah,
1: but uh, for the for the the day we got the server delivered, we just had to slide the hard drives in. Yeah, you know, Stefan showed up at the data center expecting having to put in like 112 of yeah, right. those little screws in every hard drive. Yeah, and put and, the cages uh, on there and whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, no, I had to do that for the new drives because they had sent the carriers with the server, you know, almost it was like a year ago now. Uh, but yeah, you know, that only takes. a couple they pre-installed. So only six of they pre-installed the cages. Yeah, they pre-installed the carriers for the drives we bought with the server. That is nice. But and still put them back in the static bags, which is actually kind of difficult. The static bag is barely big enough, yeah. but they made it work anyway. Yeah, they must have been in the but zone. Yeah, they they take uh they take that little bit of extra care, it's, and it's, uh, it makes a big difference.
0: Yeah, white glove, white glove. Well, yeah,
1: it's it's that, but also like we talked about the um the QA process, right? Is that they don't just ship me the hard drives from how they got them from Western Digital in the box or whatever, uh? They took the effort to actually test the drives and make sure they work. Spin them up. Because, you know, as we've seen from studies from Backblaze and Google and other people, if hard drives are going to die, it's usually within the first 48 hours Mm -hmm. or even the first 24 most times. Uh, So they run it for two or three days and make sure that it's going to survive and only uh, the good hard drives actually make it to you.
0: That is so nice. Yeah. It saves you so much time. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And thanks to iX Systems. Hey, uh, so while we were talking, uh, Rikai got the uh, jbdev.community page updated with the developer summit video on there. So if you want to see what we're working on, it's up there right now towards the top. Plus you can find links to all other kinds of goodies on there at uh, jbdev.community, where we have that summit video that Alan and I were talking about at the top of the show. Okay, Alan, so uh, Sony, 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 Sony. Where do you want to start with the Sony coverage this week?
1: Uh, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, but I guess the headline really is that they have apparently canceled the release of the movie uh, that started the whole controversy.
0: Yeah, the interview.
1: Yes, so the movie, the interview about the assassination of the leader of North Korea. Yeah. Uh, and that was apparently what people were all, uh, the hackers used as their motivation or whatever. Uh, so apparently a couple of uh, big cinemas said they weren't going to air it because yeah. the hackers had made some threat alluding to 9-11 or something. Uh, And it's like, yes, because somebody can perform a terrorist attack at 18,000 separate locations at once. Right. That makes sense. Uh, but it definitely seems like Sony is trying to play the victim and, and kind of play it up at this point. Uh, some of their quotes are a little ridiculous. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so yeah, they, uh, canceled the release of the video, and they say, uh, we are deeply saddened by this brazen effort to suppress the distribution of a movie and in process uh, do damage to our company, our employees, and the American public. Oh. Yes, the American public is damaged because they didn't pay to see your cheesy movie. Yeah,
0: I feel a little damaged.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then the, the most hypocritical quote, uh, we stand by our filmmakers and their right to free expression and are extremely disappointed by this outcome. So, yeah, we're all for free speech and and freedom of expression, but we're going to cancel the movie anyway because, yeah, freedom Do you suppose it's
0: possible there was political pressure on them to cancel it then?
1: Um, I, you know, obviously, uh, I can see the idea that uh, either them deciding to or kind of being directed to play it up in order to pass more cyber surveillance type laws and so on. Uh, But... I, I think they did it uh, basically so that they looked like they were more harmed than they were.
0: Well, there's definitely an aspect of that. But I was almost thinking, too, like uh, uh, it, they they already look pretty bad in this whole thing. And so if, yeah. if they don't pull it, then there could be a certain percentage of people who decide not to go to the theater. And then that's – so then if the theaters all report bad sales, that's on Sony. Like it, Sony
1: would be the yes, bad guy. Yes, but almost – it seems like they – now, uh, obviously, they can't market it this way to capitalize on it, and you know this movie has got more attention than it ever was going to. I would never have heard <laughs> no, that this I movie know. was going to exist, big time. And it seems like they actually kind of threw away money we could have made from all the people that only went to see it because of this. Yeah, or whatever. Well, um, you
0: know, and the actors canceled their tours. They don't. They weren't really. They didn't really say why. But they're like, I think part of it was is. They say part of it was for safety, I think, is kind of implied. But I think yeah, our also part of it was like we've gotten what? so much I know, they've gotten so much free marketing out of this whole thing. Yeah. They don't need to go around.
1: Um in particular, a number of people, including Bruce Schneier, uh kind of insinuated that they think that the hackers may have found something especially damaging to Sony, and Sony is is capitulating in an effort to avoid that actually being disclosed. Uh so Bruce Schneier uh hmm. gave an interview to Vice.com. Uh and he said, uh, it's really a phenomenally awesome hack. They completely owned this company. <laughs> and he said, uh, this is like Snowden, only for Sony. Uh, you know, He said, the release uh, from this hack could keep going on for months as we get more and more of this data coming out and getting to look at it. Um, and uh, there's some really interesting stuff I'll talk about later in the story. Um, Schneier also says uh, that it seems to suggest that the hackers will soon leak something that will look very, very bad for the company. Uh, earlier this week, Sony sent a letter to news outlets uh, uh, reporting on the leak saying that they could face prosecution uh, for downloading the stolen information and uh, for disseminating and so on. And, uh, Snyder says that that letter uh, was a signal that uh, the worst is still to come, right? You know, Sony is only going after the news places, trying to get them to stop downloading the data and looking at it because they know there's something in there that if it got out would be really bad, right? Uh you know, It's not the gossip that they're worried about, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, and so uh, Gawker.com has a copy of the letter that uh, uh, I think it was Hollywood Reporter got because Gawker hadn't got one yet, <laughs> and, but they posted about it. And, and then at the bottom, they had to change the message that well, we've got a copy of this letter now too. Hmm. Um, but Schneier says, uh, the fact that they sent that letter uh, tells me there is still stuff uh, to be found that Sony is terrified of. There's some really bad stuff in there, stuff they did, stuff they said, stuff that's illegal. Someone from Sony is going to jail for this. And I think that's why uh, Sony's capitulating in this case.
0: To try to preemptively save face?
1: Uh, Well, more to try to mollify the hackers and get them not to release that bit of data. Mm, Okay. Now, the chance of that not happening seems fairly low to me. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they definitely seem to uh, be... Very much in favor of antagonizing Sony uh, but you know if they place it up for a while it'll be interesting to see
0: what could be in there by this point though that wouldn't have been discovered
1: well uh, they claim to have gotten how many terabytes of data and they released a couple oh and of I things. guess
0: not all of it's been released yet right okay yeah okay the only right. fraction
1: of it. and yeah. uh, on on like Twitter and pastebins and so on they've been claiming there would be a big uh, Christmas surprise or something so it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah ah uh, but about the specific stuff uh, you know the claim about terrorist attacks and physical violence and so on Mm -hmm. um they talked about uh, the threatening letters to the family there's no proof those came from the actual people that did the hack and not just people that took the leaked information and did that and about the terrorist attack and so on uh like schneider says it's just some people acting like 12 year olds and you know trying to scare people and laughing at them right it's you know anyway you really have to consider uh capabilities and so on when you're looking at these threats.
0: Right. I agree.
1: Uh, in particular uh, at Vice.com, they have another article that's saying the reaction to the Sony hack is beyond the realm of stupid uh you know this is not terrorism. You know, they're trying to call it terrorism or cyber terrorism cyber or terrorism. whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well there was no violence, so how is it terrorism? It's like they stole the script for the new James Bond. Yeah. But nobody died. <laughs> um and you know I can. You could kind of stretch the definition of terrorism because they're trying to scare Sony into doing something, but in this case, it's really more blackmail than terrorism. And so I, I really don't like the idea of classifying this as terrorism or cyberterrorism or anything like that. And, you know, apparently the White House is coming up and going to actually blame this on North Korea. Yeah. And it's like, based on what evidence? Oh, you're not going to tell us? Right. Right, right yeah. They it's uh, just getting all kinds of ridiculous. They had a
0: there was an article in the New York Times last night about it, and uh, they, they just two anonymous officials familiar with the matter were were sourced.
1: Um, and yeah. so and uh, if they're anonymous, how do we know they're actually familiar with anything? Well, and here's here's <laughs> like at the end of the day, <clears throat> or they're familiar with the government's want to promote the idea of a cyber war against North Korea.
0: <laughs> you you know what they're going to do, right? Is eventually they'll just release this movie. It'll probably be later in 2015. So mm-hmm. Sony will. This will be. So you you mentioned like how Schneier I think it was that said Sony's kind of playing a victim here. Uh, this is going to be in that victim column. So we've had all of this horrible things happen to us. Plus we couldn't release our movie on Christmas Day. This is yet another cost of the uh, cyber attack, and yep. it will. And it, in the New York Times article where they say that it is North Korea. They also, in that same article, say this is the most devastating cyber attack ever to take place on U.S. soil. So you, there's a lot
1: being played right. here. So devastating this, in that Sony lost some money. Right. And it was
0: embarrassed real bad about you know saying yeah. things about people. Uh, yeah, like making employee, racist jokes well,
1: about President Obama.
0: And the employees, you know... Info that got out does that's the worst part. But uh, yes,
1: and that's unfortunate. Well, for those and also, people. but if you, and, but, but that's that's Sony's fault for storing it in a spreadsheet.
0: And if you buy into the, that, they stole movies and put them on pirated sites too, which is another cost, right? So it's another, I, as
1: if the movie wasn't going to be pirated if know, it wasn't for that. I know.
0: I know. Uh, but you can see how all of this is going to get added up as the cost of this cyber. And now we will have this as look at the cost of, of a cyber so, attack. So
1: you could say this is most costly attack, but devastating is the wrong word. That's what the New York Times called Nobody it. Nobody died. Yes, but they obviously have a mission, as it seems. Yeah. You know, or they have a certain bent they would like to put on the story.
0: Yeah. Uh and uh. and unfortunately it is Sony again. I know it's Sony Entertainment and it's a different mm-hmm. area of Sony, but once again it really looks like a lot of really bad 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 practices that yes. really bit them at the end of the day.
1: Uh so to get into that part of it a little bit um you know we we heard about you know the the day after the hack was announced or whatever that Sony shut everything down and yeah. people were Couldn't forced even to use, like, their use pen and paper yeah. to to but Part of that might have been a little less out of their or a little less in their control than we thought. Uh in particular, the malware that was used apparently includes a wiper, which was erasing the machines after they were done. Uh so they went and stole the data, but then also destroyed it. Yikes. So possible Sony actually lost some of their data. <laughs> uh, if they didn't have good enough backups. So, it does uh, so it- Cisco's uh Talos security team has uh, some analysis of the wiper malware that was used uh, on in the Sony attack.
0: Yeah, this is great.
1: Uh, so they have an article here uh, where they, you know, tearing it down and following the TCP stream uh, back to yeah some stuff. This is really neat. Uh, yeah, oh, so they got quite a good analysis of it. And uh, then at the end, of course, being Cisco, they're like, "Well, this is our different appliances that would detect this attack." Right? And blah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. If you had had blah. a Cisco firewall in place. If you had a Cisco AMP, then but, And then uh, uh, the funny one is that um, there is a separate story on ThreatPost about a bug in the AMP and and <laughs> bad things happening there. Oh, but anyway, really? <laughs> uh, speaking of ThreatPost, they have an uh, article that uh, a newer version of the desktop river wiper malware that was used in the Sony attack, uh, we kind of mentioned this last week. Uh, the newer version is signed with the certificate stolen in the Sony hack. Uh-huh. So the malware got better by hacking Sony. Yep. So and the the malware that was used against Sony to erase all their data was also now officially says signed by Sony on it, and uh, is trusted by other people's networks because it has a certificate from Sony, which I'm hoping is revoked by now. But
0: anyway. Interesting. I mean, that's why we titled that uh, last week's episode "Signed by Sony."
1: Yes. Uh, and then threat post has their digital underground podcast. Uh, they have an interview there about the Sony breach. So, uh, that's about 27 minutes oh. of, uh, good detail on what I'll happened there. I out. hadn't had a chance to listen to it yet, but it looked quite good. Um, the other interesting thing is the amount we've been learning about what the MPAA has been up to, uh, mm. through the Sony breach. Uh, the verge has a bunch of documents here, uh, which you know, this is the stuff that uh, Sony is trying to get the news article, uh, news companies not to post. Yeah, I maybe think.
0: so. Right here. Yeah. Uh,
1: in particular, when you get down to the bottom, when you look at the actual PDF, it says "privileged and confidential attorney-client communications, attorney work product, subject to the common interest agreement," which is something all the members of the MPAA signed to allow them to talk about their secret stuff. Right. Uh, subject common interest agreement. Yeah. Subject: Whether ISPs claim to be the information service provider for purposes of common carrier regulation, uh, rendering the ISP ineligible for the DMCA safe harbor.
0: Right. If Uh, you're an information service, then you can't. Then your common carrier doesn't apply to you, but then you then the DMCA does apply to you. Right. Is what they're saying.
1: No, it's they're saying that the (laughs) DMCA safe harbor provision that says because I'm a I'm a hosting provider an information uh, service
0: is what they say here.
1: Right. You're yeah. confusing the two things. Okay. What they're saying is because you are an information service uh, for the purposes of the common carrier, it means that you don't get the protection of the DMCA safe harbor provision right. that says, if you're just a hosting provider and some other user put the content there, it's not your fault because you didn't put it there. Right. Okay. Uh, as long as we send you a takedown notice and you take it down, we can't sue you. But they're saying, uh, yeah, if you're Comcast... Uh, and you're an information service provider for the purposes of the common carrier thing, you don't get that protection anymore. Uh, you know, you can't just say, oh, it's the user's fault, and we'll stop them from doing that and whatever. This is clever
0: because uh, it's using existing laws then.
1: Well, it's it's using the, the the changes we're trying to get to save net neutrality to stop the NPA from being such douches uh, to actually um, the NPA trying to use it against us and so on. Mm-hmm. But in particular, uh, the proposal here is to force the ISPs, uh, recursive resolvers, the DNS servers at your ISP at Comcast, uh, to block the pirate sites.
0: So just work right with the ISPs. Say,
1: hey. Well, to force the ISPs to block it without the ISPs even wanting to and so on, right? Oh. Uh, They're basically trying to make it impossible to look up the domain, the pirate bay, uh, from inside the US by forcing every ISP to block it. Uh, and then they they similar talk to, about we've seen similar things happening in the in the UK but using you know court stuff.
0: They talk about <clears throat> what some of the common uh arguments will be and what the responses to those common arguments will be. They've already they've already kind of identified what some of the common responses will be and uh the and the wiggle and the wiggle ease that they'll use to uh to address them.
1: Yes, uh, the most aggressive uh position that we take is that Uh, if an ISP is uh, providing fundamentally to its users uh, or sorry, functionality to its users that does not fall within the scope of section 512-KIA then the ISP is not a service provider under the provision at all uh, because they are uh, offering to the end users uh, not transmission but rather transmission bundled with DNS caching and other information services such as usenet access, email, or web browsing. Well, email and web browsing Aren't services that an ISP provides, they're just transmitting you to the other end. So, maybe the DNS and caching is a service they provide, but people can just use Google DNS or something right. and then it's not. You know, your ISP is just providing the pipe. They used to provide extra things like um web caching and Usenet and email uh and stuff like and stuff like that. As value adds to differentiate themselves from their competitors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make them not an ISP, really. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, the appeal of this argument is that it uh, takes precisely uh, or tracks precisely the reasoning of the FCC, which declined to treat ISPs' provision of transmission as a separate service offering, but rather. Uh, as a commingling offering containing multiple information service features alongside transmission, uh, in which the DNS and caching in particular were inextricably intertwined uh, with transmission, so that the ISP could not be said to be offering uh, inexorably intertwined uh, transmission to the public. Uh, so they cite a lawsuit, or this is uh, uh, proving the reasonableness of FCC's holding that s- DNS and caching are necessarily invoked. During use of the uh, internet service. Now, th- that court case seems to have the problem that they're, again, assuming that your, if your ISP doesn't provide you DNS, then you couldn't have the internet. You can get DNS somewhere else, or you can run your own recursive resolver.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, most people aren't, you know, Windows doesn't have one by default, but that doesn't mean that the, yeah, it's, anyway. Uh... There. Are this and many other plans, including uh, like we talked about last week, the uh, stuff with uh, Google going back and forth. Google right. did all this stuff, bend over backwards to the MPAA, and they're like, meh, Google's not hurting enough." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: maybe this is just it's just a, a lot of this kind of stuff that comes out to light. Uh, but it, right, right. it'll be interesting to
1: see what else comes out of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I feel a little guilty for the, like kind of voyeurism of wondering what's going on there, but well,
0: when they're uh, talking about messing with DNS and stuff like that.
1: Well, yeah, uh, I, but I just mean in general from the uh, from Sony and yeah.
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and it's definitely like there's some aspects of it that have
0: gotten a little out of control, and I think part of it's because of the news cycle during the holidays. There's not a lot of yeah. big stories, so they've gotten like a lot of the news outlets have gotten well, all in. And
1: uh, in particular, I think part of it is that the tech press does a better job with this type of uh, story because they actually know how to read these files and stuff, right? Right, your regular news reporters, you know, they get 40 gigabytes of data and they're like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very true. Uh, yeah. All right,
0: Alan. Well, uh, let's take a, I'll take a, just a break right here and I'll tell you about something I know to do. Let's go over to Ting, techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com will take $25 off your first device or it'll give you $25 if you have. Ting compatible device in your pocket. They have a BYOD page you can check to see if your device is compatible. 2015 is going to be an awesome year for Ting. So right now, they're offering up to $150 per line that you have to get canceled. You take that, you combine that with our $25 credit, and you're going to have your Ting service covered for quite a while. Now, here's what's great about Ting. There's no contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for your usage. It's $6 for the line. I've got three lines right now. And then you just, whatever you use minutes-wise, messages-wise, and data-wise, that's what you pay. The dashboard makes it really easy. Uh, the average Ting bill works out to be $26 a month. $26. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, and if you think about it, for smartphones, that's a really good deal. Plus, Ting has no hold customer service. So if you ever get stuck, you ever have any troubles, you can call them at one eight five five. Ting FTW. But you'll probably be able to get most of that with their dashboard. But like I said, so not only does Ting have that early termination relief program that's really great, but they're also rolling out GSM support in early 2015. This is uh, this is going to be really big because you'll be able to take advantage of both CDMA and GSM all within your Ting account. Manage it from your Ting dashboard and it's just pay for what you use type service. I think it's going to be really neat. And they've got the coverage map up. You can go check it out. And they got some blog posts about it. Uh, you know, and that's cool. But ting crazy. Ting crazy. Uh, they're also rolling out very early stages right now. Fiber optic internet service.
1: Well, this is uh, Ting's parent company, 2COWS, but yeah, yeah, they're looking at uh, rolling out a fiber optic internet service to compete with Comcast in Virginia, I think it is the first target market. In uh, particular, they yep. said when they did their research, everybody who's launched gigabit fiber service to people's houses has had uh, more demand for the product than Than they ever expected And so they're like well that seems like It's obviously something people want Uh, And uh, I'm sure most Comcast Customers would love to have a competitor to Comcast
0: Oh my gosh So crazy fast fiber access No hold Uh, customer support
1: yeah, fr- from the company that does things yeah. properly and has, it's, it's, uh, has known has been doing the internet longer than Comcast and knows more about how it actually works. Kind of a neat
0: initiative, and it could bring some honest-to-goodness competition. You can find out more at ting.com slash internet if you want to read more mm-hmm. about it. But start by going to techsnap.ting.com. That way, the TechSnap show gets credit for your visit, but you also get that $25 discount, and then you can get started with something great. They have a lot of really fantastic devices. Go check them out. Everything from really great value feature phones to the latest and greatest Android phones, or just a SIM card for that Nexus 6 that you buy from the Google Play Store, techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Congratulations on the fiber optic internet to everybody at Ting and the Two Cows company. Yes. We'll keep an Why eye that. Why are out, they not starting goes.
1: in Canada? Bastards. Why are they not starting
0: in Washington, Alan? That's what I want to know. Yeah. TechSnap.dee. Oh, they're Ding, starting it
1: around the University of Virginia, apparently.
0: Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. As it were, Alan, as it were. So uh, a little birdie tells me that there's a new BSD, BSD Now that just landed. Episode 68 just hit the web. Just the Essentials. What's this about? Just the Essentials. Sounds like uh, a, uh, like a cooking show.
1: Oh uh, so, uh, we interviewed uh, Michael W. Lucas about his uh new book uh about FreeBSD.
0: Well there you go. Episode sixty-eight. Just hit the web. This is your halfway point to start
1: downloading. Yes, uh his new book is FreeBSD Mastery Storage Essentials. Uh so it's everything you need to do about uh dealing with storage on FreeBSD, starting down with the raw disks and uh when to use hardware RAID, software RAID, uh you know, motherboard RAID. Uh, when to use like Geom versus other stuff, when to use ZFS versus UFS, how UFS works, all the great stuff. Um, you know, dealing with the 4K sector alignment stuff, uh, the difference between aligning the sectors in the the file system with the sectors on the hard drive and, and lining partitions versus lining the block size and everything you need to know about all that stuff, wow. including a whole section on disk encryption including choosing between the two different kinds of encryption that are available on FreeBSD. Because uh, there's Geli, which is um, the kind of more modern, fast one designed for you know storing your data. Uh, and then there's GDBE, which is more embassy-grade one, uh, where you can destroy the on-disk keys, but then so that if you then enter the correct password, it tells you you entered the correct password, but sorry, the data's been destroyed. Uh-huh. So that if someone is is torturing you for the password, you give them the right password, they know that you gave them the right password, uh, and maybe they stop torturing you.
0: (laughs) Episode 68. That sounds like an interesting book.
1: Yes. uh, Uh, Good guest. And he also talks about his next upcoming books. Uh, uh, The next one is uh, Networking for SysAdmins, Uh, trying to uh, help people that are just sysadmins understand Mm. more of the basics of networking and uh, and routing and and kind of... uh, like you said, a, a number of the companies he's worked at before, the sysadmins and the network admins have been in separate groups and they've always kind of at war with each other because the, the network admins didn't understand how you know, this didn't work over here. And That's how,
0: Layer 7 stuff. I don't give a crap about that.
1: Right, and the, and the sysadmins uh, were like, "Well, why isn't the router logging more so we know what the problem is?" It's like, "Well, the router has no storage. How's it going to log?" And, and you know, if you never uh, set up
0: that that damn net net log server for us, and maybe we get some of this over there. We did a syslog server a year ago. I could, I've had this conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. a year exactly. For, and, for years. Uh,
1: <laughs> and and so the book is is uh, is trying to bridge the gap a little bit and help sysadmins understand the networking side of it better. Okay, uh, that's So cool. I'm really interested in that. But he hasn't started uh, that yet, or, he, or he has. Uh, he's expecting to have that one up fairly soon, I think. Oh, uh, so he's written it and it's being reviewed okay. right now for technical. That's a good one. Stuff, and then uh, uh, in particular, the network one covers uh, BSD, Linux, and Windows.
2: That's ambitious. Uh, and so
1: the tech review part is going to take a little longer because you had to get his usual BSD experts aren't going to be able to review the whole thing, uh, but. Yeah, basically, the first draft's done, and it's just going to take some editing and stuff, and then that'll be out as well.
0: Very cool. Uh, well, I'm sure you'll let us know. All right, Alan. Well, I think that means the news is all done. So, with the news done, that must mean it's time for the TechSnap feedback. sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupyter Broadcasting site or even better, start a thread on our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in from Coffee Guy with a firewall question. Here we go, Alan. Buckle up. He says, I've been running an old IBM X-Series server for about a year, mostly as a file server, and I use subsonic heavily. I'm running CrunchBang because I'm comfortable with Debian and I like having a lot GUI even if I hardly ever use it. It has two NICs, and I've decided it's time to make it into a hardened firewall. PFSense seems like an obvious choice, but I'd like to retain its current functionality. Uh, Probably the subsonic server. I only have two gigs of RAM, so I'd like to keep it light. Should I look into a hypervisor solution? Is there some Linux-based firewall I can snap into my current setup? I'm hoping Alan can point me in the right direction. Love the show, and have a happy holidays. Coffee guy.
1: I don't know anything about Linux firewalls. Sorry, I can't help you there.
0: Yeah, oh. so I mean, well, he could just Subsonic? use he could just use IP tables, I suppose. So Subsonic is a like an online, web-based, server-side media player. It does like media management, podcast downloads. Uh, it's got a web interface to it, and then you can also connect a bunch of different apps and stuff to it. It's pretty nice. Uh, I, I have so one of my own. the house.
1: Subsonic streaming media server can be installed on FreeBSD. So you could install FreeBSD rather than pfSense on the machine. Install your Subsonic on that. Uh, and then also do the firewall with pf or ipfw.
0: You gotta wonder too if you could just put SubSonic on pfSense using the plugin
1: system. SubSonic is pretty um, popular. I don't know that much about the pfSense plugin system. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, um, I, it's mostly really designed for for stuff related to the firewall. Not uh, the FreeNAS one is actually diverged now so that they they you know have support for things like this. But um, yeah, I don't know about the what firewall. What a, uh, um, a hypervisor? Yeah. Yes, no. With that little RAM, you're basically because with a hypervisor you kind of allocate the ram to the virtual machine and then the host doesn't have it you know you don't have much to spare you can do it but you're going to be even tighter on resources
0: i sure would prefer having like a dedicated pf sense rig like you know they have these small little like uh, boxes you could use Um there's yeah. t- other options there too
1: right yes yeah. so, uh... if you get a small machine like a, a pc engines or whatever uh... or one of the tiny atoms or whatever and using that uh... Uh, or moving the streaming media server to a NAS or whatever, but mm-hmm. uh, in general, you could replace Crunchbang with FreeBSD and then use the firewall and uh, keep running Subsonic, um, or uh, you could look at a hypervisor um, yeah. and then you could run, you know. And he can also, uh,
0: if he's really, if you, know, if, you uh, if you put
1: the Zen hypervisor. Uh, on top of that, Linux there, then you could run a pfSense in a VM. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, because the pfSense doesn't need much RAM. No, it doesn't. Uh, but you'd probably want to pass through the two NICs or whatever, and then that depends on your hardware. And it's an older X series, so it probably doesn't support that. So you'd be limited performance. But you know, if you're routing less than 100 megabits in each direction, yeah. it's not going to be an issue.
0: For uh, Linux firewalls, I've also gotten a lot of uh, letters of recommendation for IPFire, which is sort of a pfSense like. Uh, Download and deploy distro. Uh, So good luck, uh, coffee guy, and uh, let us know how it goes. Next, email comes in from Leon, and he says, Hello, I love the TechSnap show. You give me insights into how the IT world spins. In my company, I'm the graphic designer. But because there's no one here managing IT, I also do our IT. Our company slowly grows in personnel and is in and in devices that are connected to the internet like printers, computers, servers, NASs, phones, tablets. Soon I'll have more than 256 devices on the network. So, here's my beginner question. How do I set up my network and assign IPs when there'll be more than 256 devices? So devices will not be able to get to the 192.168.1.xx IP. Will devices be able to talk to each other? On the flip side, how can I set up my network with just IP management so that devices can talk to each other, and, or at least directly? I think he's a little confused. Oh, so you're saying
1: if the devices can't talk to each other at least oh, okay. directly.
0: <clears throat> so can you please give me a quick overview of how to set up an internal network where there'll be 257 devices, or maybe there's even 1,000 devices. I hope you can give me a good overview of IP management. So I can keep learning through Google. Keep up the good work and a Merry Christmas. So what do you think, Alan?
1: Uh, So that's what a subnet mask does. It uh, controls which addresses are in the same subnet and which addresses are in a different subnet. To get from one subnet to another subnet, you need to go through a router. Um, And then, you know, if if your router then decides whether or not you're allowed through and so on. Uh, So in general, what you can do with this current case is, you know, Uh, He's using a slash 24, right? 255.255.255.0, which gives you 254 usable addresses. Um, Now, uh, to grow that, you can switch to a slash 23, or 255.255.254, which now gives you 510 usable addresses. Uh, So basically, that would give you 192.168.0.1 through 192.168.1.254. Uh, or you know, if you needed, he mentioned specifically uh, 256 uh, plus 256 plus one. Uh, then, if you go to slash 22, it gets basically it doubles every time. As you take one bit away from the networks and go into the host section uh, by changing that subnet mask, um, you get twice as many addresses. So you can have 256, or 512, or 1024, 2048, 4096, 8192, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and So if they're in the same subnet, then they can talk directly to each other uh, and basically they send out an ARP request, say, hey, what's the MAC address for this IP, get it, and then they can send an Ethernet frame directly there and the switch takes care of it. If you uh, want to isolate them, so he says specifically how with just IP management can you make it so devices can't talk to each other, then he could say, you know, certain devices are over in this subnet and they can't be talked to directly by devices in this subnet. Uh, and basically all the uh, devices in subnet one, uh, when you try to go to an IP address that's not in your subnet, whether that's the subnet beside yours or the internet, you send the packet to your default gateway uh, or your router, right? And then the router then decides, uh, oh, that either goes to one of the interfaces that I'm connected to on the router, so your router can have separate connections to different subnets, or... Uh, the router doesn't know where it's like, that's not a a network I have access to. So it sends it to its default gateway, which is your ISP. And then your ISP looks around, you know, is this one of our existing customers? No, then I'll send it off to the internet and, and on and on and on. Um, and so if you create two separate subnets, then your router gets to decide who can talk to who. So that's the setup I have here at my house. Um, I have one subnet for upstairs and that's where all my personal stuff is and there's one subnet downstairs for the office and there's actually a third subnet for servers. And, you know, there's a rule that uh, machines uh, in our office here can't talk to my TV upstairs and so on, right? Uh, And, you know, uh, I have a personal file server and a work file server and uh, you can't access my personal file server from the office, right? Because our PFSense says only, you know, only people in this subnet are allowed to talk to that server, or, you know, this machine in the office is allowed to talk to my personal file server, right? My machine in the office is, but the employee's machine isn't, and so on. Uh, So in general, if you just change that subnet mask uh, by one bit, then you will uh, create a subnet that can hold uh, 510 devices instead of 254 devices, and that will solve your problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, because of the way it works, you're in the second half of the bigger subnet, so uh, your subnet would grow forward instead of backwards. right? So instead of being 192.168.1.blah dot dot and dot two, dot blah, it it'd be dot .0 and dot .1. Uh, but that's not that big of a deal. Uh, if that does conflict or whatever, you'd have to move, and you could use dot two and dot three, or, or something to that effect.
0: <clears throat> All right. Uh,
1: but basically, that's what the subnet mask does, is it controls uh, which IP addresses are in the same broadcast domain versus uh, which ones aren't. And if you want to go between those two, then you have to uh, have a router.
0: Leon, you are, like you, Alan has given you the 411. Now go out and Google forward and uh, you'll get it all set up. Yep.
1: Uh, I have some leftover slides somewhere from when I was teaching this in the IP addressing class where this was literally the question. It's like, so you take over the network at this office and they have, uh, you know, X departments that each want their own subnet and, uh, you know, this, subnet, uh, this department has this many computers, and this department has this many computers. How would you subnet?
0: Right. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think uh, Ethan here has a question that is uh, one-bit networking, one-part firewall. Let's we'll see here. Let's see. Let's get into it. and we'll find out. It's about mm-hmm. isolating a server. I know that much. He says, in my company, we would like to set up our own cloud with own cloud. In, per, in purpose, uh, its purpose will be to send or share files with our customers and clients. I know we could do this with a lot of other established services, but we don't want to share data with others, just mm-hmm. our clients. How can we isolate a server located in our company with own cloud installed to be accessible only through the Internet? Can it uh, it can't be accessible through the intranet? Am I reading this right so far? Yep. Okay. Some sort of isolating the application from the rest of the internet with uh, with other applications. In addition, will this help to prevent spreading possible hacker intrusion? Will it help if OwnCloud is installed on a separate physical server, or does a virtual server provide enough of a safety if OwnCloud gets compromised? Can a virtual server also be configured that it can be accessed from
1: only the internet? Thanks for the insights. So uh, it sounds like, particular, his goal here is to prevent island hopping. So if someone does hack their own cloud, they can't then get to inside uh, to the internal network at the rest of the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can be done with a virtual server, probably better with a physical one, but either way. uh, And basically, this comes down to yeah, the firewall and the IP address you assign the server. Uh, you basically have to give it an address in what's normally in a network topology called a DMZ or demilitarized zone. It basically means this is a part of the network we don't trust, right? It's just the part with our public internet IP addresses, right? So I'm assuming their company has more than one public IP address and one of those would be assigned to this own cloud server and it would only have access to the router to go out uh, to the internet, and they'd have to create a rule on the router to make sure that that machine can't connect to the internal network. Yeah. Uh, The complicated part will be, by the sounds of it, they actually do want people uh, inside the company sitting at their desk to be able to upload files to it. Uh, So that'll be a little trickier, but that's basically a a stateful firewall rule saying that inside the intranet is allowed to connect to the cloud server and upload a file, but the cloud server is not allowed to initiate a connection into the internal network. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's basically just, uh, obviously you can put it in its own VLAN or whatever, uh, but generally you would put it in the, uh, the VLAN that's what's called the DMZ and it only has access to uh, the internet and not the internal network at all. Uh, I have a similar setup here. Uh, you know, there's a couple of the internet-facing interface on all the servers is in uh, DMZ, uh, VLAN 300 on my network, and uh, they can only access the router that goes out to the end. In- now, some of them have a second network card, uh, like physical separate network card, that's on an internal network that goes between those servers, but again, that one is isolated uh, and can't reach the, uh, the office land either. Hmm. It's again a separate VLAN. Hmm.
0: Uh, I think we have a theme for, our, for some of our episodes uh, this week. Folks that are uh, finding themselves in the role of managing an IT infrastructure that's beginning to grow a little bit beyond their current grasp, but Benjamin writes in. Uh, he says, Due to cutting costs at my organization and uh, employees getting laid off, one of them who was laid off was our only IT guy. Now everybody's doing his or her job at to their best ability, including me. I started to read some IT news, and I've also started to listen to your show. In the news, I read that Google prefer HTTPS over http. We have several websites. What kind of certificates do I need to buy? Is it extended validation certification or a domain validation SSL certification or an SSL certification? We can buy just one. For all of our domains, or we have to buy each one for each domain? What encryption type and key exchange do we have to choose when purchasing the certificate? I don't know if you've already talked about certificates in your past shows. I just started to listen not too long ago. I don't know about your answer policy if this type of question gets answered on the show, but I hope you'll answer mine. Thanks, Benjamin.
1: Yes. Okay, so um, there's SSL certificates, which basically prove the identity of a site. Uh, And then there are basically two different ways to do that. Uh, The first is called... uh, Domain validation. So basically, what that means is you prove you actually own the domain. So they look at the email address that was used to register the domain, send it an email, you click the link, you prove that that's your email, and therefore you get the SSL certificate. This is to prevent you know me from buying the SSL certificate that uh, for JupiterBroadcasting.com and being able to make a spoof site. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that. Technically, that validation isn't all that strong, mm. but it's good enough for what most things use. So then, uh, mostly because that became a commodity, where you can get a, a domain validation SSL certificate for like ten bucks now, um, the registrar or the domain, the certificate authorities came up with extended validation certificates. These ones require actual paperwork and proving your identity, and so on. Uh, and they do basically two things. Uh, In most browsers now, they will make the URL bar turn green Hmm. instead of the default like gray or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, a better trust symbol than the little padlock. Uh, And when you click the little uh, link or whatever beside the green bar, uh, it will contain the details of your company. Like it'll actually say the address of the company. So if you look at an EV uh, SSL site, you'll see not only uh, the green URL bar, but it will, you know, say this is the name of the corporation and their address and so on. And it's supposed to make you feel more secure in shopping with them. Uh, the prices for those vary from the like $150 to like a thousand or $2,000. Uh, but you can get, uh, so basically if you're doing a lot of like, if you're doing e-commerce, you might consider the EV SSL. Uh, but in general, your regular $10 domain validation SSL is fine. Uh, now he has a question about all our domains or each domain separately. Uh, It depends on a couple of different things. In general, each domain requires a separate certificate. Um, There are certain certificates. uh, Blanking on the name now. It's like U something. Universal Communications something. Uh, They do sell certificates that can sign multiple domains, uh, but they cost quite a bit more money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Depending on the number of domains you have, it's usually cheaper to buy a bunch of the separate $10 ones than to buy uh, the the special ones that where you can have multiple domains. Um, Those ones exist almost exclusively because of um, uh, Microsoft Exchange email server. (laughs) Uh, But Basically, a certificate has a list of the domains that it's allowed for. And uh, the advantage to one of the certificates that has multiple domain names on it is that all of those can run off a single IP address, where normally each SSL site requires a separate IP address. Uh, or did in the past until we came up with uh, the SNI, or server name indication. Uh, but for backwards compatibility, most places still use a separate IP address for each SSL certificate. Uh, and so the advantage to the uh, the unified communication certificate uh, is that you can have multiple domains on one certificate. Uh, but that doesn't really work if you don't own all in all domains. So if they're for all your domains, then you can get one certificate that covers them all. Uh, But every time you want to add a new one, you have to reissue the whole certificate. It gets a little sloppy. Um, And the reason you don't see that used more is because most web hosting providers are hosting sites they don't own. right? And so Mm -hmm. that doesn't really make sense.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, There's also what's called a wildcard certificate. Uh, We use these at Scale Engine uh, where you can get, say, star.scaleengine.net. So that's one certificate you buy. They're about $100, and they cover all the subdomains that you can create. Uh, only to one level, though. So they don't cover something.something.scaleengine.net, just something.scaleengine.net. That uh, and that's very handy if you want to create a lot of them. Uh, for example, we use it because we actually have, uh, for our reseller system, each reseller gets their own subdomain or each customer. Uh, and so that one certificate can cover thousands of, of subdomains, hmm. all all ending in mm-hmm.
2: Uh
1: So those are the main types there are your domain-validated, And then uh, your wildcard, which is uh, a domain validated, but covers all the subdomains too. And then you have uh, your extended and they also have extended wildcard. And then the unified communication one is multiple domains on one certificate, which can be helpful and save IP addresses, uh, but rarely seen outside of uh, Microsoft Exchange email servers. Well, Benjamin, good luck. Uh, He asked about encryption types and key exchange. Uh, Those are really not considered oh, right, yeah. much on the, when you buy the certificate. Um, there's the hashing algorithm used on the certificate. So in general, uh, to buy a certificate now, it has to be 2048 bit, not uh, 1024. So you want that. And then, uh, most certificate authorities are pushing now for, uh, the SHA 256 instead of the old SHA one. Uh, but that doesn't work with Windows XP. So that's up to you to decide, uh, which one you want to buy. I don't think most places have switched yet because the old ones aren't being retired in, because Windows XP is still around. I hope... Uh, and I then hope, for uh, the actual encryption and stuff, that's a setting that you do um, in the web server after you have the certificate. Uh, I saw there was a a website with the list of them. that, that Somebody made a clever short URL of the the... How to set it it up for your... Uh, No, I saw this like two or three days ago. Although um, Mozilla has a list, uh, which you can use. I'll drop a link in the show notes. So Mozilla has a list of uh, what order they recommend you put them in, uh, which you can take with a grain of salt. We uh, went through that on BSD Now as well. Um,
0: All right. Benjamin, email us back in and let us know how it goes too. Yeah, I'm just, but it's, it was like
1: cypher.list or something like that. But it was one of the new top level domains, and somebody did something very clever. And I can't remember what it was. So obviously not clever.
0: Task <laughs> the chat room to it, and then
1: uh, if yeah, we're, it was like cipher list or cipher or right, something.
0: That's your job, uh, and uh, Benjamin. You know, I it it makes me and also uh, really a lot of our emailers this week. You know, I I. I feel for them when they get stuck in these positions and they're trying to figure it out. I'm glad TechSnap can be of use to you, and uh, you can also email your questions in TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com, or even easier, it's just that contact link that just you choose TechSnap from the drop down and send it in, and uh, we'll watch uh, we'll watch the chat room for uh, to see if they find it for us during the break. But that's all the emails for this week. Go over there, send in your emails. We'll get to them. Uh, when we get back in a couple of weeks, it's going to be a little bit, so don't worry if you don't see it. We're also ba- doing another batch of emails in a- in our second episode we're recording today. So if your email didn't get answered today, but you did send it in, there's a good chance it's going to get email- or answered in our next episode. So keep an eye out for that. But with the emails all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. all the Roundup for stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over them and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links were powered by our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Like this first one. Somebody remembered that I begrudgingly am still a Viber user. Mm-hmm. And uh, Viber got themselves in a bit of uh, trouble on Twitter this past week when trying yeah. to call out ESET, the makers of uh, ESET antivirus. Nod.
1: Yeah, or not 32 So yeah. uh, you, you see, if you scroll down a little bit in the story, you see there's this, uh, they tweeted a picture, and it's uh, ESET giving a warning saying, hey, the object. Uh, Download.cdn.viber.com slash cdn slash desktop slash windows slash fiber setup uh, is the win32 slash toolbar that search suite w uh, and is a potentially unwanted application. Uh, in particular, it, uh, every time when you install it, it uh, starts doing stuff without asking you and so on. Um, and uh, so you have the option to either disconnect it or uh, allow it to continue installing. So Viber tweets an image. Uh, of that warning box with in big red letters, I'm guessing done with MS Paint, uh hashtag ESETSOX. Yeah. And then tweeted, we suggest you uninstall ESET and get a better antivirus. Buggy software keeps reporting a threat in Viber. Hashtag ESETSOX. Uh and uh ESET responded uh as you say in the uh, show notes there with an uppercut. They say, at eset uh, sorry Viber, but privacy of our customers comes first. Uh, Viber does silent downloads and sends statistics without asking. Uh, hashtag ESET doesn't suck. Oh! And then they post a code snippet from Viber showing them uh, connecting to service.viber.com and posting to the install underscore statistics and returning a bunch of information about your machine uh, without asking you to do that. And also to start to... Actually, the, the helper class is actually called helper code going HTTP download uh, in silent. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty hard to claim that it's not silently downloading stuff.
0: Now, Viber says, "Look, we're just pinging after a su- successful installation with a little stats so we know where people are installing at." Uh and they yeah, and they say they say you'll that
1: notice when Firefox wants to do that, it asks you if you would like to do that first. Yeah, yeah that is uh, the difference. It's, it's very it's not very nice to assume that uh, that people want other people to know they're installing Viber and so on, right?
0: Yep, yep.
1: It's uh you you can't have an implicit opt-in for something like that I agree oh Viber we stand by our original comments and request that ESET stop blocking Viber unnecessarily well uh, if you uh, weren't such an ass about it in your tweet maybe they would have been more willing to uh, work with you
0: yeah yeah, it's, you did kind of. They did kind of like take the first strike.
1: Uh, like we suggest you uninstall ESET and get a better virus. Yeah, uh, and, and the then, then hashtag ESET. Soft- sucks. So they're trying to say it's buggy. It's, 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 it's no, your software is spyware. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right, Alan. Next story in yeah. the roundup: Yahoo plans to disclose all new bugs it finds in ninety days. Within ninety
1: days. Yeah. Uh, so basically, they're uh, modifying their procedures a little bit. So normally, with responsible disclosure, you would wait until the other place has patched it and is uh, ready for the news to come out. Uh, but Yahoo put a, a hard limit on that in ninety days, so that uh, you know, if it's not fixed within then, they're like, well, uh, the chance of, of this being exploited by somebody else and people not knowing about it is greater uh, is a greater risk than um, uh, what. Than people finding out about it before the patch. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. Yo, Yahoo. Uh, all right. Uh, there's a lot of different outlets
0: reporting this one. Uh, it's a, supposedly, it's Russian malware that's a, it's already hit over 100,000 WordPress sites that use a uh, a plugin. I'm forgetting the name of the plugin now. At the time that we're doing this, but it started rolling out over this last Saturday and Sunday, and it started happening very, very fast. Google's already blocked 11,000 domains to try to curb the
1: damage. Uh, And researchers are warning that it'll be... Uh, It's a slideshow plugin called Slider Revolution. Yeah, that's what it was. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, Slider Revolution has uh, issued an update that fixes the problem, uh, but... Yeah, there you go. Oh, uh, gaming site Dolphy.net was one of the first infected sites to fix the problem by removing the code and going behind a firewall. Uh, I didn't know that uh, they hit that, because that's a site I frequent.
0: Hmm. Well, there you go. So that was happening uh, over the weekend.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Alright, Alan, uh, the hunt for uh, Red I, October Yes, uh, also there's been one that's been going around uh, I guess it's not in a roundup but uh, just a quick mention, there's mm-hmm. one uh, uh, torrent locker that's uh, been encrypting people's files and, and holding them for ransom again Yeah. Uh, but apparently it has something to do with torrents Anyway, uh, yes, so the team behind the Red October Advanced Persistent Threat Attack is uh-huh. back with a new one called Cloud Atlas uh, and uh, Twitter post has a write up about that. That's catchy.
0: I like the names here.
1: Well, it's based off movies again. I'm not yeah. sure what the. Yeah. Uh...
0: I like that. That's a good way to go. Uh, so yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. All mm-hmm. right. Uh, this next story had me face palming earlier this week. Verizon's new encrypted calling app that does end-to-end encryption. Kind of not so end-to-end. What's going on here?
1: Right. Uh, so the company that makes it called Cellcrypt uh, says uh, or. You know, when asked about the fact that this end-to-end encryption that's supposed to mean nobody can uh, listen in on your call uh, happens to include a government access option. Uh, And the vice president of CellCrypt disputes the idea that building uh, technology to allow wiretapping is a security risk. So it's a secure encrypted call, but we have a way to break in and decrypt the call. Yeah, look, uh, that's not going to fly for Chris. I'm sorry about that. Uh, They say, quote, It's only creating a weakness for government agencies. Uh, He says, uh, just because a government access option exists doesn't mean other companies can access it. It also means that it doesn't mean that they can't. Not having a back door means that people shouldn't be able to access it. Having a back door means that certain people can access it, and other people have the potential to be able to access it.
0: Yep, and over time, more people will figure out how to get to that back door.
1: Exactly. And uh, what's the point of end-to-end encryption if there's a hole in it on purpose? And, you know, also, if the point is to keep the government out, why is then (laughs) is doubly doomed? Well, you know, uh, I agree.
0: Maybe they're taking a page from uh, Canadian telcos who envision a surveillance-ready network, according Uh, to government documents, right? Yes.
1: Well, in particular, that they're ready to offer it. Oh. Uh, So the government has uh, passed legislation that uh, isn't as strong as it was originally going to be, but basically the telcos are like, oh, we're ready to provide you with all this extra surveillance stuff just so you won't legislate to force us to do something even worse. Mm. Um, but in particular, it's a little sly because, you know, only the really big telcos can set up this really big thing to provide surveillance for the government whenever they want kind of thing where... The reason why the telcos are all of a sudden so eager to do this is it basically blocks all small competitors from trying to to keep up. Right? right? Cuz right. if you're a smaller competitor or someone trying to break into the market, you can't afford to build this giant surveillance network on top of your infrastructure. Yeah. Right? Or to purposely build all your infrastructure with holes in it. Whereas, you know, if you have huge piles of money and you can charge your customers uh to install the surveillance, it's easy. And so the telcos are eager to see this Rules adopted because it means that there will be no new entrants to to charge them or to compete with them. How do you feel about it? Uh, not very happy. Yeah, well, not much you can uh, do, I suppose. Well, my internet doesn't actually run through that. I'm not. I I, I, I don't go <laughs> I like through any of the major, major telcos. Like <laughs> uh, my internet actually goes directly <laughs> to Toronto, where it then gets on an American ISP. <laughs> That wasn't what well, I was expecting. I, well, it gets on an international backbone that I trust more than any other big telco in the world. So.
0: <laughs> you gonna kind of caught me by surprise with that answer. Yeah. All right, but it makes sense. So <laughs> ours had uh, kind of a bad day a couple of days ago. They were just briefly, uh, if you want to call it hacked, that's fine. It was really a defacement. Yeah, yeah. well...
1: Yeah, they can't deface the site without hacking it. I know, it. So,
0: I just yes. I just I kind of hate uh, calling everything uh, hacked these
1: days. Yes, uh, in this particular case. Yeah, so the front page of uh, Ars Technica was uh, replaced with uh, defacement message for about 15 minutes before they fixed it. Uh, in particular, um, the attacker broke into one of their web servers, but didn't... Uh, obviously, the web servers basically have read-only access to the content, uh, so they couldn't change anything there. Uh, however... Um, the uh, they made a successful attempt uh, after gleaning some information to uh, get to the central score where they could actually uh, replace the website. Uh, and they uh, replaced the, they put up a defacement page that uh, streamed a song from a band called Dualcore, where the chorus of the song is "Drink all the booze, hack all the things."
0: Hmm.
1: Um, so it seems these particular guys were just you see that fun.
0: ours uh, recommended that everybody that had an account change their password because they're yes. using MD5 uh, well, with...
1: Well, I'm going to talk about that actually in a second. Oh, here. okay. Um, but yeah, so um, it turned out that... Uh, even though the web server has read-only access to the content, apparently there was a backup file stored on that server somewhere that the attacker managed to read, and mm. by reading it, they got enough information to then island hop. Yeah. So they actually had their network secured properly, but they had a file laying around that contained sensitive information. Like a
0: password or something.
1: Uh, or a database or something that gave yep. them enough information yep. to uh, get to the central part. <laughs> so uh, they did fairly well, but then it kind of broke down. Them backups, and like then, I was saying. Yeah. And so they actually, so they mentioned that uh, the passwords in their database are hashed with uh, MD5 using uh, 2048 iterations and so on. Uh, And obviously that got, you know, there's a bunch of comments up here about MD5 really, you know, you've had several articles about how that's bad. Yeah. You know, uh, 2048 iterations, not enough, blah, 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 blah. lots of people complaining about it. Uh, And then they actually have a proper security expert actually posted and said, well, in particular, uh, and uh, Ars also clarified, uh, their comment system, which is the thing people would be signed up for, is actually powered by PHP BB. Uh, in particular, it uses a library called PHP, or PHP Pass, right? PHP Password, uh, which is written by the guys that did OpenWall, which is a firewall, and they're, they host like the, the mailing list for security vulnerabilities between the operating systems, the, right. the distro security list and yeah. stuff. They're really known for security and stuff. In particular, um, the reason why that library uses PHP, or uh, sorry, uses MD5 is because on older versions of PHP, uh, of course, this library is written in like 2006 or something. It's kind of old. But uh, MD5 is the only one that was guaranteed to be available on every machine. Uh, SHA-1 was pretty new back in 2006 or wasn't as widely adopted. And even SHA-512 was really not popular yet. Um, and so... Unlike SHA, or unlike MD5 Crypt, which does 100 rounds with weird mixing, this one's a little more basic, but it's doing 2048 rounds, which is quite a bit and helps. Plus, it is doing a proper salt. uh, So, it's not that bad. Uh, To put it in perspective, if you look at something like uh, OL Hashcat, which is a hash cracking software for using video cards, if you use a single uh, uh, AMD R9 uh, 290X, which is a beefy video card for cracking. Uh, Normally, if you're cracking just the MD5 hash with no salt, uh, you can do 12.2 billion hashes per second. Uh, If you're hacking against PHPass pass, because it's doing the 2048 rounds, then you're limited to 3 million hashes per second. So that's already, you know, 4,000 times slower. Uh, But once you add the 1 million unique salts from... uh, the, uh, oh, um, the sample data they're using here is the uh, Forbes uh, when they got hacked, mm, mm-hmm. uh, if you remember a while back, and they had about a million user accounts leak. Uh, as we saw you know, with the LinkedIn one, in a couple of months, they had hacked almost every password that was uh, used on LinkedIn except for people that had like LastPass style <laughs> yeah, passwords. Yeah. Um, with the Forbes one, even I think it's a year later now, they've only cracked 16% of the passwords because they're hashed so strongly that it takes a lot more effort, right? Mm. Uh, so, in the example of the Forbes data, because there's 1,070,000 unique salts, right, because each password uses a different random salt, uh, that means that they have to try every password against each hash separately, right? You can't just, uh, if if everything was just MD5, you try each password once and you're done. Uh, but because each password, each hash has a unique salt, it means you have to try every password that you want to try against every hash separately, so that means the effective hashing rate against that list of a million users is two point eight hashes per second ah uh, which is way too slow right that <laughs> you could you could try that many hashes by typing passwords <laughs> right uh and so it's having the desired effect now, if you have a hundred cards then you're two hundred and eighty hashes per second that's still too slow uh so it's not that bad you know obviously it could be better, but in particular uh. As long as you have a reasonable password, this is going to provide uh, better protection than we've seen most other places having, which is just raw MD5 or raw SHA five uh, two fifty six or whatever. You know, because they were using a proper library, uh, it's that makes safe. me feel better. Um, you know, hopefully they would switch to something better like SHA five twelve crypt. But in this case, it's they didn't. Uh, importantly, they didn't write their own hashing algorithm or something. They used a standard, uh, proven one. And that's why it's not so bad.
0: All right, Alan. A small bank in Kansas creates the bank account of the future, 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 future. Uh,
1: Except for it has nothing to do with bank account per se. Uh, So in particular, uh, the most common way right now to do electronic transfers of money is the ACH, right? Mm -hmm. The automatic clearing house. Uh, The problem with that is those are done in batch once a day. Yeah. Because that's how banks worked in the 70s. And and still do. Yeah, uh, so basically, if I want to send funds, I file a thing that night. It gets cleared, and then the next day, maybe it shows up at the bank, and then you know, a couple of days later, the money is finally where it needs to be. And that's obviously slow and cumbersome and horrible. Right. So this bank has basically uh, built a new anti-fraud system, uh, so that that amount of time isn't required as much anymore. Uh, and in particular, they're just going to tie it to the clearing network they used for ATMs. Right. When you put your card in an ATM and take money out, it disappears from your account immediately, not two days later, like an ACH. Right. Uh, so they're like, well, we could use that network uh, to do large transfers uh, for businesses and stuff and have it done instantly. It's like, why hasn't anyone thought of this before? Yeah, really? Seriously? <laughs> um, in Canada, we actually have a service, uh, used to be called CertiPay, now it's called Interact or whatever, um, and where you could do this for emailing money to people. Uh, so yeah. you could do up to $1,000, okay, kind of nice. like a PayPal-like transfer between people. Uh, you know, I used to use it to pay my friend for computer parts when he had a computer store. Uh, and basically, it was a federated system. So it was supported by every bank in Canada because it's based on the ATM network, right? So you log into your bank's website and say, I want to do a transfer, put in the person's email address, come up with a secret question and answer, amount of money you send, Um it used to be instant, then they introduced a half hour delay for their fraud system. Uh, but then half hour later, they get an email, click a link, log into their bank's website, pick their account, put in the secret answer, and they get the money instantly. Hmm. Uh, but uh, in general, I would say that I'm surprised this hasn't been done before. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, now, it might need some changes. You know, Normally, your uh, ATM transactions are limited to, like, depending on your account, but like, or $1,000 or something, uh, you know, to prevent if your ATM card gets stolen or whatever. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. um, it definitely seems like having instant stuff happening would be great. Uh, I'd love to see this uh, reach something like Stripe, which I use for credit card processing uh, because, you know. Yeah, no kidding. Now, they delay seven days and then send it. But even after they send it, it takes a couple of days to show up. Uh, The funny one currently is uh, we've been using... um, uh, the Vancouver Currency and Bullion Exchange uh, or Bullion and Currency Exchange, whatever uh, to uh, sell our US dollars to get Canadian dollars ah. after due to credit card billing Yeah, and the money for the deposit of the Canadian dollars shows up a day before the withdrawal <laughs> of the US dollars because of the ACH system. Huh. Because it takes longer to process US ones because something. You
0: know what, Alan? That's a little cattywampus. That's a little cattywampus.
1: Yeah, well, because well, yes, because then it makes my bank account look like I have a lot more money for a day because mm-hmm. <laughs> I've gotten the deposit of the, the Canadian dollars, uh, which are currently selling for Canadian dollars worth less. So the U.S. dollars sell for more than one Canadian dollar uh, and the U.S. dollars haven't disappeared yet.
0: Ride the float. Uh, we were just talking about PHP BB yes. uh,
1: and I guess they've had a little bit of downtime this week or what, what's been going on over there? Uh, they found an intrusion on their servers and pulled everything offline in an abundance of caution.
0: Ooh, so they've just posted a third update um, today?
1: Yeah. And uh, So uh, looking back, they say, on the Sunday, December 14th, several of the web servers powered in PHP phpbb.com were compromised upon discovering the ongoing attack we immediately took our network offline and performed a thorough investigation which is continuing at this time we'd like to ask everyone to follow basic security protocol if you were using your phpbb.com or area51.phpbb.com password for anything else on the internet you should change to unique passwords uh your personal phpbb forums are not affected by the compromise Mm -hmm. uh the compromise wasn't done through phpbb uh um, so, they said they're rebuilding their servers from the ground up uh, to verify the integrity of all their data, and the process will likely takes several days. Uh, and they say, uh, at, and then they have an update two days later, uh, which is uh, yesterday. They say, at this time, we're proceeding with recovery efforts and have some additional information. We have confirmed that the initial entry was made via a team member's compromised login details and not a result of a vulnerability. Okay. So, they got hacked because uh, an individual user who has privileges on their system was uh, hacked. Mm-hmm. or lost their password or something. Uh, Say so the attacker were able to obtain access to phpbb.com and Area 51 databases, meaning this user information, including uh, hash-salted passwords, was compromised. Additionally, all login attempts at Area 51 between December 12th and December 15th were logged in plain text. So it seems the attackers modified uh, the forum to actually write down the plain text passwords so they could steal them all. So if you logged into Area 51 between the 12th and the 15th, uh, they got your password and anything you did in plain text. Uh, While the hashing algorithm utilized in PHPB will make it difficult to obtain these passwords, again, that's the PHPASS that we just talked about for Ars Technica. Uh, uh, You should not take any chances if you're using your phpbb.com or Area 51 passwords anywhere else. You should change them, and obviously you'll reset them on PHPBB's side uh, when they come back up. Uh, they said we will provide full details, including the steps we've taken since the compromise. Once they're uh, done getting everything set back up,
0: back up and operation. Wow,
1: good luck to them.
0: Uh, and you know, maybe the person that got them had to pay a little more for that malware or that kit that they bought, uh, because well, according in this case,
1: they didn't use a, a, that. they yeah, stole used... <laughs> some. I was the just time. trying to but do a just, nice yeah.
0: transition, because according okay. to a new updated study by Dell SecureWorks, uh, costs on the black market
1: are going up. Uh, so they did a report back in 2013, and this is their updated one for 2014, uh, and they're talking about the cost of various things. Uh, not crazy prices, with, though. Not crazy. Right, uh, well, even with the like glut of credit cards we've seen from Target and Home Depot and PF Changs and so on, um, the average price of a fulls, which is a credit card including name, address, phone number, email address, data of birth. So you get the student, identity and Africa. the credit card. Yeah. Everything you need so that you can answer all the right questions I'd like and so FOLS, on. i like a please. Yeah, um, that the price the average price went up by about $5 compared to last year. So it's sitting at about $30 instead of $25. $30 and I get a credit card and an identity? Well, you don't really get the... It's not the same as buying an identity, but you get all the information so right. that you can yeah. pretend to be the person... Yeah, to make uh, the purchase. The, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, they said, well, the price of individual credit card numbers remains about flat or dropped a little bit. The price of the fulls, the more detail, uh, is actually up a little bit. Um, and actually... Targeting people in the UK, Australia, Canada, and the EU, the price is as high as $45 per record. Nice. Because uh, there's so many American ones, I think, is part of the thing. Oh. Uh, also, uh, premium MasterCard and Visa cards uh, that work well worldwide, like the special you know, black, platinum, gold ones or whatever, or ones that are not likely to run into uh, being frozen because they were suddenly used in a, a foreign country. <laughs> right, yep. You know, uh, These, again, targeted are mostly the ones held by people that travel a lot. Um, With full track one and track two data, so an actual skim of the card, uh, those ones are selling for $35 or more, so slightly more than the regular cards. They also uh, said that uh, the price is not deflated. In particular, non-US cards uh, are worth quite a bit, Hmm. uh, including uh, Brazil and some other places. They said, well, online fraud uh, remains a constant. The inclusion of identity kits uh, that can be used for in-person scams, including loan applications, check fraud, and more, uh, has actually gone up. Uh, a, full sk- uh, a full identity, including a scan of a working social security card uh, with the name and address and everything, can get as much as $250. And counterfeit non-U.S. passports can fetch as much as $500. And you can also get valid utility bills for $100. <laughs> okay. Because those are typically something that's required to prove your address when applying for, oh,
0: yeah.
1: uh, for example, a driver's license to make fuller use of the stolen identity and so on. Yeah. Uh, they also found that um, remote access Trojans are selling a lot less this year, uh, ranging from $20 to $50 for notorious rats like uh, Dark Comet, uh, which sold for $250 last year. Uh, there are also a number of free rats flooding the market, and that's deflating prices, obviously. Oh, shoot. Uh, they also say for exploit, by, uh, sorry, exploit kits, the nuclear and sweet orange uh, kits are... Touching the best prices as much of uh, $450 a week or uh, $1,800 a month.
0: i got to get in on this, Alan. Yeah. Uh,
1: apparently pretty strong DRM on these exploit kits where they uh, can charge you per week or per month for them.
0: And the article has the link to the full uh, PDF, yeah. which has all kinds of goodies. This is like a high quality. This Dell SecureWorks company, these guys really got some money behind this production
1: here. Yep. This is nice. uh, yeah, and the in and Del case make heavy use of FreeBSD as well.
0: Oh, look at them. All right, yeah. Alan, I believe that brings us to the end of this week's Tech Snap, doesn't it? Yep. Well, how about that? So we'll go over to Jupiter Broadcasting and click on Episode 193 to get notes for everything we talked about, also RSS feeds to get the show weekly, download links, obviously. And the calendar will have all of our live times if you'd like to join us at a live show. We typically are live Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is?
1: Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Yeah,
0: we won't be live next week because it's Christmas, but. Uh,
1: That's, or the week after that because it's New Year's.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, like the show really, but we will have shows for you still, so don't worry. If and if you're subscribed to the RSS, you'll just get them automatically. Automatically. So, boomies. Also, uh, click that contact link and send your feedback into the TechSnap program because we needs it. And last but not least, if there's something you didn't hear us cover but you would like us to cover, or you want to engage with the community and maybe ask your public and get ask your question in public and get lots of feedback techsnap.reddit.com. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. See you right back here next week.